Welcome to After Awakening. Here we discuss enlightenment and the greater spiritual reality with meditation masters and spiritual teachers. Welcome to R&R. We have done a episode every week answering your questions, participating in the questions we get from students throughout the week. Ricardo and I are both meditation coaches and we're meditation enthusiasts. So today we'd like to start off with a Ramana Maharshi quote, Ricardo. And it goes like this. Your duty is to be and not to be this or that. I am that I am sums up the whole truth. The method is summed up in the words, be still. What does stillness mean? It means to destroy yourself. Because any form or shape is the cause for trouble. Give up the notion that I am and so. All that is required to realize the self is to be still. What can be easier than that? Awesome. <laughs> so it reminds me of a specific question, actually, that I got during this week from a guy. The question was about visualization. And he was saying, you know, how can you do visualization in a way that is easy? But I'm visualizing this meditation object and it's creating tension just by engaging in the visualization. So this is a great point to discuss because so many people will just stay in forceful visualization for years. And the idea here is we're using visualization as an anchor for the mindfulness, for the awareness. But right. the most important thing is the stillness. Right. So if we're visualizing, but the visualization is actually increasing the chaos in the mind, it's not stilling it, then we know that we're not doing it correctly. We're using too much force. My answer to this specific question, for anyone who's having difficulty with visualization and with tension during visualization practices in general, what we're going to notice is if we're trying too hard, there's going to be tension in the forehead and there's going to be tension in the nose and in the cheekbones automatically. What Ryan was explaining is once you start to feel tension in your, in your head and the eyebrow section or anywhere in the body that you, it should display that you're forcing it. There's this tension that you feel that comes into play. And from there, you have to be aware of that, that you're even doing that. So it's good to body scan before you get into any practice. That's why you, there's preliminary practices that you do. You breathe in, breathe out, start to get relaxed, then scan the body to see any tension points. So like Ryan was saying again, it's sometimes you feel in your brow section. Sometimes uh, people feel in the whole head area. So it just depends on the practitioner. I know for me, when it comes to visualization, it was very, it's very, it was very hard in the beginning for me to do visualization practice. I actually hated it. Just like I hated doing love and kindness. <laughs> it was just, it was hard for me to even practice it. And what kind, what, what helped me was knowing this idea, which is, it's not so much the visualization in the beginning. If you can do it, it's about the sensations or the feeling that this visualization is there. Exactly. So, yeah. So some people, 
they may suck at visualization, but as long as you can either feel the visualization happening, you actually trick the mind to actually, it forces the mind to be there. It is like you're in that state or you're, you have the visualization. And in, in that sort of process, the, medit- the visualization will actually come out of that uh, experience, that sensation. Yeah, that's exactly how I approach it as well. When I was doing visualization practices many years ago, the issue was I was always trying to force and control the object and make it clearer by volition or intention. And the difference is now the difference now is that you just observe the visualized object however it arises. So, we're let's say we're visualizing we're using the moon as a visualization for example. This is a big this is a common visualization object in tantric buddhism in vajrayana you visualize a deity and then there's a moon disc in the center of it in the dhammakaya Mm. technique you can visualize the moon at the center so the notion that we're trying to continually modify that visualization is what inhibits stillness what we need to do is just observe it we just watch that image and be as relaxed as we can and that is what facilitates stillness Mm. So that unification of mind, the mind no longer deviating from the meditation object, the stream of mindfulness not being interrupted, that's really what we're cultivating here. So even if the visualization is not particularly clear, the continuity of our awareness is what's most important. The, the visualized image is, is acting as an anchor. What happens is when we're using a visualized image, we're not having as much discursive thinking that is related to visual thoughts, right? In a lot of the traditions, there's a combination of visualization and mantra. That takes care of discursive mental images and it takes care of discursive auditory phenomena. Your thinking and talking that that you do in your mind all the time, that's interrupted by mantra. That's a mundane purpose for the use of mantra. We, we can combine mantra and visualization. And what, we, what happens is if we're able to do that in a very relaxed way, the mind becomes pretty still. And as Ricardo said, doing progressive relaxation first is extremely useful because when I, it's common that when we tell people to visualize, they have this idea that they need to have an image in their mind and like through force, keep it there. And that's exactly what makes visualization difficult. That very thing is what makes visualization difficult. Well, like with any practice, even if you tell people be relaxed, it, something in their mind forces them to try to be relaxed. So it's almost counterproductive. I think some people practice awareness the wrong way. And this is where we get into forcing, like you, like the whole since the whole notion of forcing it, that's practicing awareness incorrectly. Yeah, for example, in, in Buddhism particularly, we have the notion, the teachings on right mindfulness. So that there's a differentiation between right mindfulness and wrong mindfulness. There's an actual definition of that. So what is a defini- what's an example of wrong mindfulness or wrong attentiveness? In Buddhism, it would particularly be the kind of focus that a person uses when they're about to kill a person 
that's a that's a wrong kind of attention. And why does it mean wrong? Why do they say it's wrong? They say it's wrong in the sense that it's not conducive to path. It's wrong in the sense that it's not conducive to awakening. It's wrong in the sense that it's not conducive to realization and unfolding. So when we're using a meditation object, whether it be visualization or the breath, it's normal to use enough effort to be aware. It's normal to, to have enough of a oomph for a push in, the, in a way in the mind to continue to observe something. But even that, we want to reduce that over time. We want to have it be as effortless as possible. Why? Because the more effortless the mindfulness is, the more effortless the awareness is, the longer it will be sustained. And the greater sense of vanishing there will be. The issue is that when we're practicing meditation, we're, we're coming to the meditation cushion with this big ego that wants so many things. Once has dreams of enlightenment, dreams of a better future, and that's all fine. Dreaming is okay. But in meditation, that sense of self that we come to the cushion with gradually becomes thinner and thinner and thinner until eventually it vanishes. And when it vanishes, we find ourselves in samadhi, in deep states of meditation, in very refined states of awareness. And the solidity of our ego, the solidity of the reactive mind or the need to control, to modify the meditation, to change the meditation object is essentially working against you. So we may have this idea of, oh, the brighter the meditation object is, the better. So in my mind, I'm just going to keep making it brighter. I'm going to say brighter, commanding it to be brighter. We have to see that we're in the driver's seat when we're doing that. And being in the driver's seat is the issue in meditation. <laughs> Directing the experience is the problem itself. Only when we can get out of the way can we really experience the depth of stillness and the purification of meditation. Because essentially you have all these things about you believe that you have this and this. You have all these things. Oh, you have your, your belief systems. You have what you think is wrong and right. And you bring that into your meditation and it, it clouds it. It really clouds it because you're putting that into interpreting what's the experience of the meditation. Like I know so many people, they, they get into their meditation session and they start to see, oh, blue lights, green lights, whatever. And that's all fine. There's nothing wrong or right with it, but they get so fixated on it. Then they start to interpret it. Oh, does it mean this? Does it mean that? And so that's the type of wrong mindfulness that can be applied to meditation. And like what Kai said, he said, the, like the wrong way to meditate is don't try so hard. <laughs> it's, it's essentially, yeah, you're not trying. You're, you're not even trying. You're just there. there. There's no need to try so hard. Our need to control our meditation is so solidified in us because we're such controlling creatures. We want to control everything, our time, our space, whatever comes into our life. Then we bring that into our meditation. Oh, I just want to feel good. I don't want to experience. I just want to relax. That's why I have meditation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there comes a, there's a limitation to it into really deep states of consciousness 
if you have that type of thinking, you're limited, unfortunately. Yeah, this is this has to do with the message that not a lot of people want to hear, which is as popular as some of the meditation apps are, meditating five minutes a day, that will sure it'll bring some happiness and clarity to your life. And of course, it's a and of course, it's a good thing. But when we're talking about deeper states of meditation or awakening or enlightenment, we have to see it in the context that people dedicate months and years on meditation retreats to this kind of thing, even a decade. I know a monk who spent a decade in a meditation retreat, a very long time. Generally, for everyone who is really on the search and takes this as a, a path for the rest of their life, increasing the amount of time that we commit to it is really what's necessary for the mind stream to become purified. Ricardo and I had a Dzogchen teacher. He's, he passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago, but his way of teaching was that the aim was to, to be present and have awareness all the time, constantly. And, and Ryan, you're the one that, that told me this. I, I believe you're the one that told me this, where a lay person asked a monk, when's the best time to meditate? And the monk replied, when you open your eyes and you close your eyes. That's all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's continuous. So what's the function of continuity? Why is continuity important? So if we're seeing meditation, imagine there's a bottle of water. And there's a bunch of sediment and dust and dirt that we throw. shake it up. The whole thing is just filled with, with sediment. You can't see through the water. So when we start a meditation practice, we're setting down the water bottle for the first time in our lives. And we're expecting enlightenment the next day. What's happening is that that sediment has to settle. And even if you have a, a realization of Buddha nature or a recognition of your inner awareness, and you have an awakening in a sense, it still takes time for that, for the contents, the obscurations in that bottle to settle, despite even having really big strides in your spiritual unfolding and insight, it still takes time to undo the habits of the reactive mind, to burn off specific karmas. So when we're doing sitting meditation, that bottle is still settling. And it's, in it's so funny to me. I think it's just so funny to me how as as far as you can go, you can still go 10 years. We, we've been meditating for 11 years. And we, there's those things that still arise from time to time. You're in it. You see it. So it's always a good reminder to, or to hear this, Ryan. I think it's, <laughs> it's always good to, to hear this. Yeah, there's even a sutta from the Lankavatara to the incredible Zen sutta that, that Bodhidharma possessed. And it talked about how once the various forms of consciousness have exhausted their karmic seeds, then your transformation, then the path is complete. So even if awakening did happen in that instance and you saw the Tao or you experienced enlightenment, there's still a process that, that follows afterwards. The, the machinations of the mind and the karmic seeds within the various levels of consciousness that we have, they come to a stop on their own volition on their own accord, even if a person was to spontaneously just have an awakening. And what do, what do I mean by awakening? This is a question or maybe something that some people are wondering that are listening to this talk. 
Notice how the term awakening is not referring, it's not gaining, right? When we, we, it's not called spiritual gainment. It's called spiritual, <laughs> it's called spiritual awakening. You basically awaken to a deeper, more fundamental aspect of who you are. And full spiritual awakening would mean to discover fully in, your, in its entirety who and what you are. Even when we consider the subject of mind itself, you know, let's think of thoughts feelings you can point out thoughts and feelings and memories but what happens if i tell you to point out awareness have you ever seen awareness have you ever seen your own awareness or your own consciousness even in your mind's eye does it have a form have you touched it it doesn't have a form <laughs> doesn't have a sound <laughs> doesn't have any characteristics the awareness itself is not tangible. The awareness itself, in a way, is unknowable. We can't put it under a microscope and look at it. So in, in meditation, in, in spirituality, there's so much that is mysterious. And when we're practicing, the whole essence of Zen and Vedanta is to get to the root of what this I is. They ask themselves the question, who am I? And they turn the mind inward to see. And what do they see? They don't see anything. Just thoughts, memories, experiences that come and go. Experiences, process. Well, this goes back to our very first quote, which is, it means destroy yourself. <laughs> you're literally, what is, like you're saying, when they go in, there, there is no going in anymore. At a certain point, there isn't. Because the eye is completely removed. The statue that you've created, the beautiful statue, golden statue of this person that you think you are, that's all polished and golden. It's completely removed. That ego is removed. Now, the, this begs the question, can you handle that? Can you handle uh, all your belief systems, all your desires, all these structures all your passions and all these things that you've cultivated over your lifespan. Are you able to really look at it and possibly remove a lot of those things? And that's not for some people. But I don't want to go too off track. I want to gear back to any... Was there any other questions, Ryan? Yeah, we had a question that... Uh another question from let's call him C he was talking about a kind of animosity that can arise in relation to other people like even despite in, being even like despite it, being a spiritual person so I don't know if, I guess this is the broad question because I don't know whether or not he's feeling animosity or he or she's feeling animosity in the meditation or outside or both but both so I, funny enough, just recently, when I started, when I started practicing, there's a lot of things that some people may consider animosity arise, but it's only because I've practiced for so long, and I guess you can say the the mind's more refined, that I'm just able to just look at it and be still with it just flow within the animosity 
because we need to really define meditation as everything is okay no matter what you feel no matter what you think it's all right and i think that needs to be emphasized for people again everyone wants to feel happy and blissful and that's completely fine that should that should give you a goal for some people that's a goal but how do you reach that is knowing that in the animosity in the anger and in the frustration within the practice that you're going to feel that it's completely fine and whatever arises associated with those things is still fine you still do the practice by just being aware or whatever practice that you normally do now going off of everyday life having animosity having anger we have to think about why do you as a person have that and we're not i'm not trying to define this for you but is the animosity toward people because they have a different belief system do they have they hurt you in the past whatever this thing is it's relative to condition they hurt me i have this pain because i have this idea in my mind about a certain situation so already there's a position of separation right that my idea is better or my idea is somewhat more for some people divine <laughs> so it's good to start to understand these things like why am i having animosity what i find is it's usually due conditioning that my ideas and my belief system is causing this separation and this anger but it's not just it's not a good thing just to to logically understand this that's why we practice meditation because in your meditation it may look completely different whatever the result is it may be completely different so my sort of advice with that would just be on one level in your practice it's completely fine it's good that you're noticing these things it's better than than repressing it suppressing it two is when you go about your everyday life do the same thing which is be aware of it notice the patterns notice what's going on what can you navigate through this is this person in a more uh, meditative way is this person am i getting animosity because i'm my belief system i believe in my belief systems that i'm better am i having animosity because i'm angry whatever the case may be just continue to just practice as you would in your meditation session and but that i actually i, I don't want to project so much too because i also want you to do this as smoothly as possible maybe you need to communicate maybe you need to do, do these things maybe you have to set up boundaries whatever the case may be it should be very simple simple yeah i can only speak to this from personal experience and when there was a time that i felt very 
distasteful towards other people. At that time in my life, it wasn't so much about them. It was mostly about me. So if there's a specific orientation that you have or that we have towards other people, we think one group of people is some group of people are ignorant or they don't know better. Oftentimes we can point the mirror at ourselves and we do a lot of projecting. Of course, there are distasteful things about humanity, right? And there are horrible things that other people do, but that, that disgust is arising within you. That disgust is arising in this consciousness that you're operating from. And my remedy, the advice that I gave to this, this specific person was to practice the loving kindness practice, metta. So in metta, there's a few different objects. The first object of loving kindness as a meditation practice is yourself. The, the second object is another person, another individual, then a group of people, and finally all beings. I would say a lot of people have difficulty with the first object of loving kindness, which is self. To have, to generate a mind of loving kindness for your own body, for your own mind, for your own life. Some people find that difficult. That's a difficult thing for you to do. That's all the more reason for you to do that practice. If it's hard, if it hurts to share loving kindness with yourself, that's all the more reason to uh, continue in that practice. And how do we do loving kindness? So if the object of loving kindness is another person, what's an example of that or another being? We can use a cat, for example, a very happy, beautiful cat that we've known or pet that we had and have that be the object in the mind's eye and, and send the intention of loving kindness, have the intention of loving kindness there. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be free of suffering and danger. May you awaken and be liberated from suffering and again and again. And you'll feel that the heart is activated by these practices. Why? We're extending our mind, we're extending our energy, we're extending our heart to reach another being. And in that, we experience a thinning of the self, an opening of the heart center. It's like when you do loving kindness, it's not that you're creating that loving kindness is the capacity for it is already latent in the mind stream. It's already there. It's not like I'm giving you loving kindness or anyone else <laughs> is giving it to you. It's, it's there in you. So this practice is really just allowing what's naturally there encouraging that that love to come up that love to come forward and to share it with another being even though this is happening in your imagination and a lot of people report all kinds of weird stuff happening when they do loving kindness practice you know they'll do loving kindness practice for a person a friend that they know and then the friend will call or give them a text and say oh, i just want to say thank you for all the times that you were there for me uh, and that's exactly what you were doing in loving kindness. So love is a very powerful energy and the loving kindness practices have the function of being very protective. A person that is abiding in, in loving kindness is said to have the favor of angelic beings and the favor of all kinds of forces. It's just that a person who's, who's sharing that and operating from that, it's almost as if there's more light coming from them if we want to put it that way. Yes, if animosity is an issue, if you find that you get agitated 
very easily by other people and you think distasteful things about yourself or other people, I would say love is the answer. And that love and kind love loving kindness would be a great practice <laughs> to engage in. It would be very helpful. I love and, loving kindness, but Ricardo and I used to hate it. Oh yeah, I used to yeah. I always say this in every almost every episode. I used to hate love and kindness. It's just like I when Ryan would try to hug me, I'd be like, No bro, I'm just not feeling it. <laughs> but what's funny is when you practice love and kindness you're still in that very meditative state and you're still seeing what's arising. And what, found, what I found helped me was when practicing it, I would start to notice, oh, I can't send love and kindness. I feel there's something there. It's like a blockage in the heart, in the heart center. And I wasn't trying to change it. I wasn't trying to alter it. I'm like, okay, I'm noticing it. Then as I continue further, I would see memories and traumas arise and again i'm still in that state of i'm not trying to change it i may be crying you may go through detox something called emotional detox grief these things are leaving your body but through the through that practice of love and kindness you get to really just knock out all the things that have blocked you from actually revealing that you already had that foundation of love and kindness. And as hippy dippy as I, sorry about that. As hippy dippy as that sounds, it's honestly true. <laughs> it, for some reason, grounds you so much. And I see people that actually have this love center unlock. They're just floating with life. They're happier. They're ha happy people. And you can just see it. There's a sparkle. There's no judgment. There's, There's yeah. people that dedicate entire meditation retreats to this. Just to let everyone be aware of that. You can go on a loving kindness, a meta meditation retreat where that is the main practice for the entirety of that retreat. And, and what does that mean? What does that look like? It means that you're using the various objects of the loving kindness practice, self, other, group, all beings, even an enemy, exactly. You're using that over a period of days in a silent retreat setting. So literally 10 hours a day, you're enveloped in this process, in this practice of, of loving kindness. And particularly in Theravada Buddhism, it's one of the, one of the objects that leads to samadhi can lead to very deep and profound states of, of meditation and, and awareness. So imagine going on a retreat and for seven days, all you're doing is sending loving kindness to yourself, to someone else, to an enemy, to a group of people or to all beings and doing that for an entire, doing a hundred hours of that. There's a lot inside you. God, you're just going to cry. That is in the way of, <laughs> you're gonna even, cry. <laughs> of even allowing that. You're going to curl up in a little ball. And I, and I, I know someone who, who went on to one of these, these seven day, seven or 10 day loving kindness retreats. And it was, she said that just the emotional tenderness was palpable. Like so many people are crying and it's just, I don't know if that's, if that would be the case in Sri Lanka or in some other places where this practice is done, but particularly uh, this is done as spirit rock 
and it was very transformative for a lot of people. So if you're feeling, many of us are feeling that the heart is a little hard or that there's a block in that way, then, then loving kindness practice is the absolute, is definitely a way to go. It's so helpful and it's there for a reason. There's a harshness to all of this spiritual unfolding stuff. It really is. There's a sense of, there's an experience of facing the void, of facing yourself, of emptiness, of, of egoless, yeah, like of what removing. I just read destroy yourself the loving kindness practice and the other divine abidings they're called the, the brahma viharas in buddhism they offer protection really there's a harshness that can come from insight there's a harshness that can come from realization of emptiness so for so long you see yourself as this person as ricardo said like this golden statue and then you look inside you really look inside and you don't see anything light but you don't, maybe you see darkness maybe there's light but you don't see what you thought was there there can be a kind of harshness that comes from that a deep realization of that and these divine protections offer refuge all this reminds me of corinthians i i just love this quote for those that don't know there's a verse in the bible that speaks about love it's chapter 13 1 corinthians 13 I'm going to read this real quick. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a cla clashing sample. And if I, am, if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not pompous. It is not inflated. It is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoings, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, belie believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If tongues, they will seize. If knowledge, it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially, and we prophesy partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put all aside, I put aside childish things. And it goes on. But it gives you the basis of what love really is. It's such a, it's such a bigger thing than what we present it out in the world. No matter what, you can be such a, a great spiritual adept that you can meditate for 100 hours, 10 hours a day, whatever. How important that love and kindness is. You can still, you can have these experiences in your meditations and your prayers and you can see deities or you can... You've seen those things. There, there's nothing there. Then it, it really is nothing. <laughs> How important that practice really solidifies your life. Yeah, thank you for reading that. I love that passage from, from Corinthians, by the way. And I'm certain, actually, that if people only had one thing left to say, to their teacher, their master, their friend, or their family member. The only thing we'd have left to say really is 
thank you and I love you. There's nothing else. So gratitude and love are incredibly important. And when it comes to our teachers and the things they've taught us and our masters and the dharmas that, that we've learned and been able to taste for ourselves, all we can really have is, is respect, gratitude and, and love for all the people that walked this path before us. Because there were many names we never heard of, many books that were never written, many experiences we know nothing about. But it was all a part of the unfolding that we get to experience today and that people get to experience today. You know, we take it for granted that we're able to meditate and that this has become as popular as it has and that so many people are experiencing a, a spiritual awakening because just a few hundred years ago, this was uh, all secret. The world, this was this is secret knowledge. The the pointing out Buddha nature, as simple as that is for so many people, pointing out intrinsic awareness, as simple as that is. Now we call that metacognition. There's even a scientific term for it. As simple as that as this is now, that was considered a very secret knowledge. A lot of these things, a lot of texts from the sutras, were only for royalty. And monastics. And monastics they could, they could, only. They could read the language they were written in. Yes. So I remember our friend once told Ryan and I, like, you have this golden plate, okay? You've been given this golden plate. You, it's this knowledge of meditation or the sutras or the practice, whatever your practice is. And most people shove this golden plate into the closet and it gets all dusty. <laughs> you have the you have it you you ha you have the practice you just don't you don't use it the texts are right there the teachings of the masters are right there all, all we need to do is is begin to apply them ricardo i think we can conclude our episode here especially after the end of you know, reading corinthians that was just that was fantastic but do you have any final comments just continue loving guys try to practice it and see what arises because out of, I genuinely believe out of any practice, that's the most important one. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. For updates on future guests and shows, you can sign up to our newsletter. As a thank you, We'll send you a 10-minute video on getting out of duality, which has some very, very useful meditation pointers. So go to ryanjburton.com and click on Get Started. Thanks for tuning in and see you on the next episode.